Thomas? You seem particularly triggered right now. Can you tell me what happened? I've had dreams that weren't just dreams. That's right. He's back. Neo's back. The Matrix 4 is rebooted. Maybe Neo can straighten all this out. Speaking of coming back, we have a just terrific interview with a guy I have so much respect for. So, so smart. Riz Verk, new book, The Simulated Universe, an MIT computer scientist explores parallel universes, the simulation hypothesis, quantum computing, and the Mandela effect. I've been doing a number of shows lately on computing because I think it just fundamentally ties into really all the stuff we're talking about, but not everyone is always making that connection, so I feel the need to do it. Riz, of course, certainly fits in that category, as you'll hear in this interview. Here are some clips. I do hope you stick around for the whole thing. I think it's really good. Check it out. Now, in computation, we try to figure out which of those values of this graph are worth traversing, right? And so you can think of any process, which is a series of choices, as a multiverse. And that's kind of the the idea that I'm putting forward. Whether they are physical or not becomes irrelevant because they become physical only when we render them, meaning when we choose to explore that path. Okay, let me go all skeptico on you. Are you stretching the metaphor too far? If we just start down the path of consciousness is fundamental, well, I, I think the metaphor fits pretty well. You know, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time with the uh, near-death experiencers and, you know, many of them report uh, that they were able to look back in what's called a life review, right? And so they were able to kind of go back and view the events. And many of them describe it as a room with a big projector, right? <laughs> and so they're using this metaphor and it's like replaying something that has been recorded. But if you get past that and you look at the accounts, overwhelmingly, statistically, number one thing, love. Number one thing, connection. Number one thing, spirituality that doesn't really conform very well. Well, yeah, it depends which metaphor you're using and exactly how you're using it. I mean, for me, I I think let's use a different metaphor instead of a video game. Let's use social networks, right, which, which people use all the time today and creates lots of angst. But why do we use social networks? We create an identity online, but primarily what makes a social network different from a website is the social part of it. I would say the reason to be here perhaps is relationship, right? It's to, to give ourselves the experience of having relationship with different parts uh, of consciousness, which we see as other people, uh, which eventually may be all connected here. Yeah. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science and spirituality with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. I'm your host, Alex Karras. And today, well, we have a good one. Riz Verk is back to talk about his new book, The Simulated Multiverse. In case you don't remember who Riz is, he is like this super duper smart MIT computer scientist. We won't even mention the MBA from Stanford. He's also an author, filmmaker, Silicon Valley entrepreneur and investor. And we're not going to talk about that. But if that is at all interesting to you, he has some absolutely terrific books on that topic from 
this very interesting perspective that he has as a very successful game designer, programmer, maker, you know, got 30 million downloads on his games, I think while he was still in his 20s or something. So he, he really has this incredible background. But what we're really going to talk about today is this new book, The Simulated Multiverse. So Riz, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for thanks for coming back on. Sure. Nice to be with you again. So I reached out to you because we've been doing a number of shows on AI, quantum computing, and the general angst that so many people are feeling about technology and technology advancement as it pops up all over the place. So who better to talk to about that than not just the game master, but the game maker himself? Uh, are we living in a matrix? That's what we want to know. <laughs> well, as you know, that's, you know, my last book, The Simulation Hypothesis, was about that idea that we may be living inside some kind of technologically constructed reality and uh, you know, very akin to what was shown in the movie of about the matrix. And I was, you know, with that book, I was hoping to tie it to uh, not just you know, the development of video game technology, which is the area where I've spent, you know, a good amount of my career as an entrepreneur and as an investor, but also relating it to some of the spiritual traditions, you know, from thousands of years ago and talk about, you know, the matrix as a metaphor, right? Uh, whereas if you look at, you know, the religions, they all use different metaphors, you know, in Buddhism, the metaphor of the dream, uh, is quite strong uh, and that we are living in a dream and you wake up from the dream. And of course, Shakespeare, uh, you know, used the analogy or the metaphor of a stage play because that's what he did, <laughs> as did the Leelas, um, uh, Vedas, which uh, had the Leela, which was the grand play in the Hindu Vedas, you know, 5,000 years ago or so. Uh, and so, you know, my point is that if any of those folks were alive today, they would use the metaphor of a video game. Uh, which is like an interactive film script where the script can change based upon the choices of the characters along the way. And so, you know, that's one axis of this whole thing is, is using the development of technology to look at, you know, the world in a different way. Uh, but yeah, my answer last time was that I think it's more likely than not that we are living in some kind of a simulated reality. Right. So I, I didn't want to, that's great that you did that. I didn't want to totally roll this back to the last book. But now that you mention it, I think it's good. What does introducing kind of the multiple timelines, multiverse, how does that change things? And, and, and why did you feel a need to go there, I guess? Sure. Well, you know, when I finished the first book, I thought I was, uh, you know, had been down the, the rabbit hole and was pretty much done with the simulation stuff, or at least the big questions resulting from simulations for a while. And I could go back to my career in, in Silicon Valley and academia. And then, you know, I had a lunch with a friend, a friend of mine from who had just started working at Google. So I was uh, living in Mountain View at California, which is right down the road from Google headquarters, and he had just flown in from Boston. And, uh, you know, we got to talking about the simulation hypothesis, and he was an MIT alum as well. So, of course, we were talking about technology and, and how these things could be built. Uh, and then, you know, he said, well, you know, have you looked at this thing called the Mandela effect? I said, yeah, you know, I've heard of it, but you know, I kind of dismissed it as many people in the scientific community did. Maybe it's just a case of faulty memory. 
Um, and he said, well, you know, the simulation idea is actually the most likely or interesting explanation for something like the Mandela effect. Uh, and for those who don't know, many of your listeners have probably heard of it, but the Mandela effect is the idea that a subgroup of people, a minority, remember certain events happening a different way from the consensus reality. So the name comes after, comes because of um, Nelson Mandela, who some say died. They remember that he died in prison in the 1980s. Of course, we all know that not to be the case if you just look it up on the internet. Uh, or if you lived through those events, Mandela was released from prison in the 90s, became the first black president of South Africa, um, and then he died in 2013. And yet many people remember not just that he died, but they remember, you know, a whole bunch of festivities around his funeral, uh, including his wife speaking. Uh, and so these are very specific memories. And, uh, uh, you know, mainstream science dismisses this as well. That these are just, you know, a case of faulty memory. Perhaps it was this other black leader from South Africa that died in the 80s. And, and therefore, people are confusing the two. But it turns out there's a whole series of events like this, some, some of which are small, some of which are movie lines, some of which are big events. Uh, and so <clears throat> in my case, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Why don't I, you know, spend a little more time looking into it? Uh, and when I had written the first book, I had interviewed the wife of science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick. And so Philip K. Dick had given a, a very uh, sort of famous within certain circles speech in Metz, France in 1977, saying that we are living in a computer programmed reality. And the only clue we have to it is when some variable is altered. And so I had, you know, talked to her and I thought this was a fun way to talk about the Matrix because, you know, supposedly the, the, the Wachowskis who created the Matrix were inspired by the work of Philip K. Dick. And I, I thought, you know, it was just a fun way to talk about the idea. Well, after, you know, having my conversation with my friend at Google, I went back to my conversation with, with Tessa. And then I went back and rewatched what Philip K. Dick was saying back in the 70s. Uh, and I read his whole speech and I watched the video and it turns out, the first part of that statement, which is the one that most of us focus on, that we're living in a computer program reality, was not the most important part of his speech. What he said was that some variables would change and then it would be run again. And so you know, he said we would have uh, this uh, impression of reliving the same events again and again. And he gave the, the, the phenomenon of deja vu as evidence that this was happening. And he came to believe that we actually had multiple timelines and that there were people or entities changing small little variables uh, and then rerunning the events. And in his book, The Man in the High Castle, and we might have talked about this last time, but you know, he actually believed that that was a real timeline where Germany and Japan won the war. And for whatever reason, that was not an optimal timeline. So they, quote unquote, they rewound the timeline, changed some variables and reran it again. And that's how we ended up in the current timeline. And so this idea of, of a simulation, you know, why do we run simulations to see what will happen? Uh, and how do we do that? We change variables and we run them again and again. That's how we predict the weather. That's how we predict many things these days. Um, and so this idea, you know, kind of lodged in my mind that said, uh, kind of like, a, you know, the quote from, I think it was Voltaire who said, when somebody asked him, do we live multiple times? And, you know, I guess he believed we did, but he said, it's no more surprising that we live multiple times than it is that we live once. 
And so it occurred to me that if they're in a computer simulation, it would be no more surprising for us to have multiple runs of the simulation than just one. In fact, it would make much more sense and explain a lot of the, the, the weirdness of quantum physics that I came across during my research in simulation. So anyway, that's you know a little bit of a story there, but that, that's kind of what got me back down the rabbit hole and really exploring this idea of a multiverse and multiple timelines. Great. So we might have our own multiple timelines in this little discussion, which will be great. I think it's so interesting, the perspective that you bring the gamer perspective. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that in all aspects of life. As an entrepreneur, what that brings to the table as a computer scientist, even spirituality, what the gamer kind of perspective brings, maybe we ought to uh, Maybe we ought to go there right now since we're going to have multiple timelines and I can come back and hit all those <laughs> other points. But have you ever thought about that as you've gone through your career? Have you ever thought, you know, I kind of look at things a little bit differently and it all I look at things kind of like a game. Do, do you, is, does that resonate with you or no? I, it does because uh, especially through my research in this area, you know, the more I looked into it, you know, the more I began to see that this was uh, an overwhelming metaphor that can basically explain so many different aspects of life. And you know, I've spent a lot of time with scientists. I've spent a lot of time with engineers and technologists. And I've spent a lot of time with people who are, we would classify as mystics, uh, you know, who are always uh, exploring different states of consciousness. And I realized that this is a way to really connect all these threads together. Uh, and so that's why I became so enamored with it. And that's why I decided to write the book, uh, the first book uh, and the second book. But during that process, you know, people always ask me, well, so what does this mean for me? You know, if I'm just a character in a game, does that mean that nothing matters? And I say, well, no, uh, it's not quite like that. I mean, the way that I view it is, if you think of how video games are constructed today, uh, we create have characters, we have avatars that represent you, and then the avatars have certain storylines and certain characteristics. Uh, you know, kind of like in the old days, we used to play Dungeons and Dragons on a sheet of paper and we used to have different attributes for the characters like strength, charisma, intelligence, you know, all these different things. It turns out each character was slightly different uh, and we'd have storylines for those characters. And I believe that that happens to us in this life. Each of us has, you know, different strengths, different uh proclivities. There are things that we are inclined to do. Like I always knew I was going to be a, a, a computer software entrepreneur and eventually become a writer, even when I was like 10 years old. Now, how did I know that? It was just this sense that I had in the back of my mind. That was the storyline that I had chosen to run. And if you look at how games are constructed today, not only do you have these big storylines, uh, which are based upon the character you choose, but then you have a lot of smaller quests and challenges and achievements along the way. And if we didn't have those, then, you know, the game would get kind of boring. Uh, and, you know, if the game got to be too easy, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be fun anymore. Right. And so, you know, there's the, uh, 
there's this phrase that was coined by uh, the, the guy who founded Atari, uh, Nolan Bushnell, who's kind of, you know, the grandfather of the video game industry, you know, and he, he said it was, he wanted something that was easy to play or easy to learn, but difficult to master, <laughs> right? And he said, that's what keeps the game interesting. That's what keeps you coming back again and again. And, and I think we can view life that way, right? It's easy to play, but it's not so easy to master. And so if we look at the challenges that we have in life, which, Many of us do, especially as we get older, we realize, you know, life isn't all fun and games, even if it is a game, <laughs> there are challenges along the way. And without those challenges, uh, just like a movie that has doesn't have uh, a lot of obstacles for the main character, well, that becomes a vignette. That's not an interesting story or movie. Like if Indiana Jones just got the map at the beginning and said, okay, here's the Ark of the Covenant, here's the X, go get it. That's not quite as interesting as having to follow a clue and to, to overcome that challenge and go to the next one. And so if we view the, the obstacles in our lives as challenges that perhaps we have signed up for, whether we remember it or not, it can change our perspective on things, you know? Hey, that's, that's super interesting. And that's going to get super spiritual in just a minute. Um, but I am going to train, uh, kind of step back a little bit for the, for the multiple timeline thing, because I think it's super interesting. And I think it's super interesting to connect that to science. And we're going to get to this awesome quote from you, computer science is eating all the other sciences, which I really want to get to. But when I think of this multiple timeline thing, and I think how uncomfortable it is for all of us, I was going to say folks, you know, but like somebody else, but no, for all of us, the idea of multiple simultaneous timelines is, is kind of uncomfortable. But I always think back to uh, the Dean Radin presentiment experiment. Are you familiar with that? I don't remember that one specifically. I mean, I've met Dean and I know him. Oh, okay. Well, then you probably know maybe. The, so the most, one of the most famous experiments that Dean Radin did, and it was brilliant in the way that he set it up, because he just took a standard kind of freshman psychology experiments where you sit in front of the computer and the computer flashes you an image, and then we're going to measure how you react to it. And what he did was really quite brilliant. He said, why are we assuming this timeline? Why are, why are we assuming your reaction comes after the computer selects and displays the image? And lo and behold, that was the presentiment. We can't really call it precognition because it wasn't at a cognitive level. It was just the sensations in your body, dilation of your pupils, skin change, all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is a Six Sigma replicated throughout the world, multiple labs replicated by him. Time it, this, this would, if you really were objective, you'd say this is one of the most reliably, statistically, one of the most reliable experiments we have of all in science. And it completely blows away our idea of a timeline. It fits in perfectly with at least the beginnings of what you're talking about that we, so here science is telling us Forget it. It's it's the timeline thing. It's just, I mean, we probably knew this since Einstein, but we could never really get, wrap, wrap our arms around it. Now it's kind of right there in that experiment. Well, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, well, I think there's, you know, something to that, uh, that if we are not only in a single timeline, you know, we are able to know at a certain level how things might evolve. Uh, you know, based upon how they've gone in the past, but we may or may not consciously remember, like you said, it may not be at the level of cognition. And, uh, you know, I like to use science fiction as a good way of for people to kind of understand it. And, you know, there's this element of, um, uh, 
the movie Groundhog Day, right? <laughs> Which I guess is sort of science fiction, sort of not, right? But, you know, Bill Murray has to relive the same day again and again. And as he goes through again and again, he learns more and more about what's happening and he's able to react differently and to kind of master the events of the day. Well, if you think about AI and how it works today, like when we're training AI, we train it by running the same events again and again. Uh, and then we use that to, for it to become better knowledgeable because it knows what might happen in this situation or that situation. And so, for example, you know, uh, the, uh, the AI, you know, beat Ch the first chess player, the grandmaster a long time ago, IBM's, uh, uh, you know, a chess playing computer. But then more recently, uh, Google's AlphaGo was able to beat, you know, some of the best players at Go in the world. And the way they train that is through a process called self-play. It will play out each of those uh, games millions of times. And sometimes it will play with itself, right? So you have this kind of self-referential thing going on where you are doing something multiple times and then you are learning to pick what is most likely the best outcome of that. And so that is a process that I call the core loop. Right? And it's a process that happens within computer science. Uh, we try out different possibilities. Even if you go back to like when I used to make, you know, checkers games, you know, when I was first learning uh, computer science, it would go out and it would see what would happen if I were to do X, Y, and Z. And then it would come back and say, okay, of those paths, this is the most optimal path. And so, you know, my conjecture here is that something like the core loop is happening within our lives. We actually go and we run these timelines uh, to see what would happen. And then we come back and then we pick the next one that we want to be on. So, so that's where we are actually sensing, right? Just like in this pre-sentiment experiment that you talked about that, that Dean Radin did, but also, you know, where we have these sort of uh, hunches or feelings of deja vu or funny feeling clues, I call them, about what's happening about the future. Now, how can we have clues about the future if the future isn't at least uh, defined in some way, right, as a set of probabilities? Now, we'll, this is, gets into the physics and how things work. We can talk about that in a minute if you like. But that, to me, is a sense that we are outside the timeline, but then we bring ourselves in as an avatar. And if you run the game multiple times, each time it'll seem like you're just in that one path. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't another path that had been run before. Uh, and so that's kind of what I came to believe. And I defined this thing called a multiverse graph uh, and the core loop in my new book. And those, you know, those are the underlying processes of, of how I think this whole thing works. Let's talk about this computer science is eating the other sciences. And I want to kind of talk about it from two perspectives. One is the stuff you're laying out, you're making it sound like science in general is right there with you and is supportive of this kind of speculation that you're doing. But it's, it's really not in so many ways. And then the flip side of that is, as you point out, if you look at it from a different perspective, particularly as a computer scientist, and I would say particularly as a computer science game designer and developer, it's like, I know how this game is playing out. We don't know what the motive is completely for the resistance, but I, I, I don't know why. why do, so first point is, do you think there's general acceptance of at least the framework that you're laying out within science as a whole 
Number two is why are they so resistant? Because I think they are. And three, doesn't that all just crumble as computer science eats the other sciences? Well, you know, those good, good questions there and, and on all three fronts. But I would say that, you know, my books are, in fact, speculation based upon scientific findings. Right. And so uh, it's not that science disagrees, but you're right. Most scientists don't share uh, my end of perspective, but we're relying on the same findings or set of data uh, within science that's showing us that there's something strange about the world that we live in, right? And so, you know, in, in, in my last book, I laid out the, the fact that space isn't what we think it is, right? Uh, and uh, that it's really more about information and less about physical objects. In fact, in, in science, you know, the more they try to find this thing called matter, the, the more elusive it becomes. They can't really find it. It's like opening up those Russian nested dolls, I like to say. And at the bottom, you open it up, and at the bottom, there's really nothing there but information. And so there was a quote from John Wheeler, who was, you know, one of the, the giants of 20th century uh, physics, and he worked with Einstein and Bohr and many others, and he came up with this phrase, it from bit. And he said at its core, he couldn't find matter as particles, but he could find it as information, right? And, and he felt that if you had a series of yes, no questions, those are the properties of what defines this thing that we call matter. Now, the other big confounding thing that science has found is that time isn't what we think it is, right? We're used to thinking of time as going from the past, you know, slowly towards the future in one direction. Uh, but yeah, there's something called the delayed choice experiment, which was proposed also by Wheeler, uh, which was this idea of, uh, you know, are there multiple futures and when does a choice get made? And the best way to understand it is from the, the cosmic delayed choice experiment. Suppose there's light from a quasar that's like a billion light years away coming to us. And there's a black hole or a galaxy in the middle, say a million light years away. And the light has to go to the left or to the right of that black hole. Uh, it can't go both. It has to go one way or the other. Uh, now, we would think that that choice would have had to have been made a million years ago, because the black hole is a million light years away. And so it takes light a million years. It does. But what the delayed choice experiment has found is that it's not until you measure the light when it reaches us, which is a million years after it reaches the black hole, and maybe a billion years later uh, from when it left uh, the very distant quasar, for example, that that choice doesn't happen until the measurement. And so what this is telling us is that the past isn't what we think it is, and the future isn't what we think it is, that they're related in strange ways. And so science doesn't have a great interpretation for that. And the best interpretation that they've come up with uh, within physics is the multiverse idea, right? So there's like two major interpretations of uh, quantum physics that are kind of considered, you know, accepted interpretations. One is the collapse of the probability wave uh, based upon observation. And then the other is the multiverse idea. And the multiverse idea has more and more adherence over time. Uh, now, there's some problems with the multiverse idea. It basically says that every time there's a decision to be made, the universe splits off into multiple branches. So think of it like a tree, a very large tree that just keeps spreading you know, its, uh, its branches outward forever. Um, and so, you know, this is a matter of debate within science. Uh, and the question, and my, my question is, well, if you're going to clone something, you know, what is it that you clone? 
There's nothing in nature where you can clone like a giant object in an instant. It takes time, even in biology, right? You can you can clone uh, a specific plant, or uh, if you're uh, cloning a sheep, you, you know it takes time. You have to grow that clone. But the one thing you can clone almost instantly is information, right? And so, you know, I believe that this model of a simulated multiverse actually bridges the gap between these different interpretations of quantum physics. Uh, now, the, the big debate, though, I think that you're hinting at is this issue of consciousness existing or not existing. And, and that, to me, the video game uh, kind of point of view that I have, I like to define as the NPC versus the RPG. Uh, debate or versions of the simulation hypothesis. NPCs being non-player characters, RPG being role-playing games. And so like, whereas if you and I are in a game, we have our avatars, each of us is playing that avatar, but then there are other characters that aren't necessarily conscious entities outside the game. And so most scientists tend to go towards that interpretation which is a materialistic point of view that we're all NPCs, uh, but there's this other interpretation of the RPG that we exist outside and we inhabit that that character. That's where it seems to me that kind of a literal interpretation of the uh, multiverse, multiverse theory is kind of silly. I mean, no one really thinks that because it implies that the whole consciousness is an illusion. And it, it's this kind of weird interpretation, I think, of ultimately the double slit experiment, which no, it's just we're uncomfortable with the idea that where you really are the observer, that consciousness really is making a difference. But again, I point Dean Radin, you know, no, nobody, he, he needs to stack up some Nobel prizes on his bookshelf or something. Because the other experiment that he did that I thought was incredibly, you know, poignant and relevant to right now is he said, okay, I'll settle any of this kind of debate. That's not even very hard anymore. I can set up a photon beam generator in my lab and I can bring in a meditator and I'll have him, you know, look the other way and then say, okay, focus your attention on the photon beam and boom, you know, we can control that really well. And he does in another Six Sigma result. Yeah, if I tell this guy who's this Zen Buddhist 20,000 hour meditator to focus on the photon beam, he can show an effect. So to me, it's it's kind of a, I just don't even want to go there in terms of materialist, uh, materialistic uh, science, consciousness is an illusion kind of uh, crap. It, it just seems to be a huge anchor holding us down. So where, where I see you really going, I mean, I know you have to fit it in the multiverse thing, but I almost see you doing some kind of hybrid, but I, I, I'm my, my wonder, my concern, my thought is, are you being too materialistic in that interpretation of it? I mean, one of the things we talked about before, and I think it's still at play, is the kind of, kind of infinite regress, you know, who's, who's simulating the simulation of the simulation kind of thing. So I bundled a bunch of stuff there. Doesn't materialist science, yeah. consciousness is an illusion, isn't that kind of out the window in terms of really moving us forward? Well, you know, I, I tend to be very sympathetic with that, that point of view. And uh, also, you know, you mentioned Dean's experiments, but also, uh, you know, the, the, the pair, the Princeton uh, engineering advanced research uh, experiments around uh, quantum random number generators. And you didn't even need a Zen monk who's a meditator with 20,000 hours. You just got random people to come in, right? <laughs> that, that you sat down and, and, so the way that works is, you know, the, the only thing we know truly random are these quantum processes. 
And so, you know, theoretically over time, if you do 10,000 of these, it should get closer and closer to 50-50. But by thinking about it or not thinking about it, they were able to verify, they were able to, to make the variations in those numbers and show that consciousness was somehow affecting what was going on there. But, you know, uh, getting back to uh, the multiverse theory and, and consciousness, I feel like this is a way to bridge the gap. And, you know, there was a, there's a well-known physicist from University of Oregon named Amit Goswami. And, you know, he wrote a few books like The Self-Aware Universe. And, and I remember uh, meeting him once when he was in Mountain View and, and somebody was asking him about these different interpretations and what, what are the probabilities mean that we get into when we talk about the collapse of the probability wave? And what does it mean similarly? What does it mean to have a multiverse? And he said, well, all these things that we're calling the probabilities are what would happen if you ran the same process again and again and again. And that's why you get the probability wave. And that's what you know, for me, it was an interesting insight because it ties to this idea of the simulated multiverse that uh, the multiverse is what would happen if you ran the same process again and again. So it doesn't necessarily mean that we're always running an infinite number of processes. It means we run in, in, in computer programming the, the, the way that we do it uh, with quantum computers. So uh, quantum computing is a, is a whole new area that's quite interesting. And I think it reveals a lot about both computation and the physical universe because it tries to, to combine the two. Now, quantum computers theoretically are able to find an answer to a problem like breaking cryptography, for example, that might take, you know, uh, two to the 256, you know, values. And, 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 and the, there's so many values there that it would literally take a classical computer thousands of years to run through all of those possibilities, right? But a com quantum computer is able to find the answer theoretically by doing this computation in multiple universes. I say theoretically, because that's a, still a controversial explanation, but nobody's come up with a better one yet for exactly how that works. And so uh, I like to think of the world as a quantum computation, which says it's not that we're necessarily spinning off all these realities and they always exist for all time. It's that we as individuals are tapping into this multiplayer quantum computing reality and we are each able to run as many scenarios as we need to solve the quantum computing problem that we're trying to solve which for us may be to have an experience uh, as a player of a video game so now we're tying the quantum computing back to video games and so that's a way that i kind of like to think about it and it, it does i believe tie together all of this stuff in kind of a, a unique way you know yeah you're gonna have to break that down i always say michael scott you know like I tell it to me like I'm in first grade kind of thing. But no, there, there's an important gap to bridge there that I think people can understand because enough people have kind of at least done the intro to quantum computing and understand that it's kind of set up at least the way we were able to engineer it now. And we should add, you know, it's not like theoretical at this point. There's how many qubits are we up to with the most advanced? You know, I don't know the number because it keeps changing every month or two. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a couple like a year or two ago, it was only like four qubits and then it was eight. And I, I believe there's a 50 qubit machine. I'm not sure if it's been rolled out, but it's getting there. And so qubits so, so, for most people. Well, <laughs> I just want you to explain before we even get into that, because the numbers yeah. will throw people. It, it's like the way we think about it, the way I, I, I think about it is for certain kinds of problems, I can set up this huge matrix like mathematical matrix and i can go down all the paths at the same time 
And for certain problems, they, if we tried to do it linearly, like you're saying, or, or I guess whatever, the, you know, we, we just couldn't do it and this way we can do it. But the, the leap that you're making that I want you to kind of support a little bit more is you're drawing, are you saying it's analogous to a multiverse or are you saying at some deep quantum physics level, it is a, a, a truly a quantum event to have that uh, massively parallel processing, w w which is it? Well, you know, so just for people who don't know, so uh, a qubit is a bit that can have a value of both zero and one. So uh, a qubit is a bit which normally has a value of just zero or one, one or the other. It's in superposition. I like to say that it's kind of drunk. Right? It doesn't know which value it has. In fact, it has both values. So if you were to have like eight bits, most people have heard of eight bit, 16 bit. What it means is you have a series of zeros and ones. You have eight of them. And so you can have two to the eight or 256 possible values if you were to make every single bit have a value of zero and one. And so by, by its nature, what I'm saying is that any process that can be represented as information has this multiverse graph, right? It's there, whether, whether we think of it as real or not, because those are the possible values. Now, in computation, we try to figure out which of those values of this graph are worth traversing, right? And by traversing, you know, I mean searching for it, right? So if you want to search, if you, you can take two roads from here to, you know, Philadelphia to New York, and you want to figure out which is the best road, well, you have to go down each one. <clears throat> but if those two roads have two more roads, uh, you know, uh, at Newark or someplace, right, you have to keep making these decisions along the way. And so you can think of any process, which is a series of choices, as a multiverse. And that's kind of the the idea that I'm putting forward, whether they are physical or not becomes irrelevant because they become physical only when we render them, meaning when we choose to explore that path. And so what I'm saying is that quantum computing shows us that <clears throat> there is something inherent in physical matter that allows us to explore multiple paths simultaneously and to discard those paths that we don't need. It, it, it's kind of a, what we call garbage collection in the computer science world, where you've got all this extra data that might have been needed at some point, but it's not needed anymore. And so uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is, I think that the multiverse idea doesn't have to be physical. It ties back to my statement earlier that computer science is eating all the other sciences, that everything can be represented as information. And this is true with biology. This is true with physical objects. If you think of like genetics, well, genetics is kind of an information science, right? If you look at, they theorized the idea of the gene before they actually discovered DNA, but it's just defined as a series of, of, of bits of information. Uh, and so more and more you're seeing within university settings, like you have bioinformatics, you have kind of these departments that are like a blend of the traditional department, you have physics, but then you have digital physics. Well, what's digital physics? Digital physics is about the information in the universe, right? I mean, we, we used to talk about the conservation of energy, conservation of matter, all of these types of things. Uh, and now we talk about the conservation of information that isn't lost. And so there's this, I think, greater understanding that's developing across all of the sciences that the world 
is comprised of information. And, and, and I don't think, you know, science has quite figured out how does it go from information to what we think of as physical, right? And that's where the video game analogy comes into play because at the moment you are rendering one of those possibilities and that to you seems like the real physical world, but that just happens to be physical while it's being rendered out of the information that comprises all of that behind the scenes. So I guess that's kind of an overview of the way that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, that's, it's amazing. Um, let me again try and break it down because I think there's layers. I think the, the computer science is eating all the other science is kind of a really interesting thing. And, and especially for me, the more I thought about it is you kind of step it down, you know, like first on a very concrete level, like what you're talking about with biology, they get it from the fact that like the old school guy, you know, who's the head of the department, he's like, has to call everybody in. How do you run this program that does this thing again? You know, it got me. The so in that way, it's kind of eating away at it. And then what you're talking about, though, is kind of this next level if somebody really thinks about it and kind of goes into the future and says, okay, what are the problems we're really facing, you know, from a biology, biology standpoint, or genetic standpoint, just in terms of academic curiosity, you know, what would we, how would we solve that? What are the really difficult problems? Boom, they're coming right back to you and they're going, Riz, how would we solve this? And you're going, well, you know, there's some kind of AI modeling learning that could, we could apply there, or, hey, that's a problem that seems to fit with what's going on in quantum computing. And suddenly they, they've kind of lost lost control to a certain extent. So in that way, it's kind of eating all the other sciences. But then what you're kind of even alluding to is kind of a whole other level of that that is implied by the multiverse kind of thing. So walk us walk us through that. And is there? Yeah, just walk us through that. Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, well, it's a good point that, you know, obviously, there's the practical uh, if you're doing any science today, you have to like run programs and do simulations, right? Uh, and so there's the practical side of a, hey, let me bring in the, the computer guy who can who knows how to run these programs, right? Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to get beyond that to say that the fundamental entities that we have been describing as nature and physical are not nature and physical. And so perhaps, you know, when I say computer science, I'm using it as a catch-all term for several things, computer programming, AI, but also information science. I get that. I wonder, and, and you, you maybe you just totally don't agree with this, but I wonder if we're not kind of converging to the same point to a certain extent in that when that guy at the biology department who's been there forever, or, or when his sharpest, brightest, you know, post-grad assistant kind of sees the future and goes and starts diving into AI and starts diving into uh, 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 quantum computing and all the rest of that and says, hey, I got to go back and get a PhD in quantum computing as well, because that's where everything's heading and stuff like that. It's almost like for you to even think along these lines, you had to have everything that you have in your head aren't a lot of people in the other sciences going to have to go there to where they can, you know, even get to truly making this leap that you're making? Well, I think over time, paradigms shift and, and people become more comfortable 
with new paradigms and new ways of thinking about things. Like a hundred years ago in the sciences, you know, they didn't like the idea of quantum mechanics, right? I mean, even Einstein said, you know, God doesn't play dice, right? So he didn't like the idea of probabilities. Uh, and, you know, there were people who didn't like Einstein's ideas of, <laughs> uh, of uh, relativity. And so what happens over time is that we become more familiar with concepts and we're able to integrate them you know, into our thinking. And this happens with scientists as well. And so you don't have to know exactly how, you know, um, a, uh, uh, an automobile engine, right, internal combustion engine works in order to be able to understand the idea uh, behind a car, right? You don't have to know all the details of the, the equations of how the gas burns, but you know, there's gas, you put it in, it's converting energy. So that idea becomes uh, something we can use as a building block. And so I think, you know, within this computing world, like for example, at MIT, they just established a new college of computing, which is different from the college of computer science or the engineering college, which computer science is a part of. It's, it's like a whole separate, like there's the college of liberal arts, you know, the business school, there's like a whole new college of computing. What does that mean? It's about applying computing ideas with uh, emphasis on, on quantum computing, but not only quantum computing, into all the other areas. So I think this does lead us to that point. It may take people some time to get there. I mean, in my own case, I've been thinking about these things, uh, you know, since I was a kid, but also by spending time with people outside of the world of science. Uh, and so, you know, that, that leap, I think, come uh, with, with more scientists acknowledging that everything that they've been studying is information. And then that can get them to the leap around consciousness and viewing in the same way that you and I are not really talking to each other right now, are we? Right? We're actually in a virtual world, if you think about it, right? I, my avatar, which is just a series of bits that looks like me, is talking to your avatar, right, over the internet. And so I think that idea becomes something that people can understand now. Uh, whereas, you know, 30, 50 years ago, people wouldn't understand that idea. Like that was strange to think of talking to someone over a computer. Like that just didn't make any sense, right? Uh, the term avatar was introduced in the 80s by uh, a couple guys working at Lucas, uh, you know, George Lucas's uh, nascent video game company back then. And so I guess my point is that as new generations grow up, they're more comfortable with certain ideas. And then those ideas become easy enough to extend and combine, whereas before they were thought to be completely separate, you know? And so I think that's an ongoing process that will happen over time. Yeah. Okay, let me go all skeptical on you. Are you stretching the metaphor too far? If we just start down the path of consciousness is fundamental, take a whole different kind of perspective. Consciousness is fundamental, we start looking at the data sets that we have out there. We start looking at near-death experience science, you know, over 200 peer-reviewed studies, all coming back and saying that consciousness is now immediately outside of this time-space continuum that I think you're kind of depending on in a way. Are you or are you not? Where would that put us uh, relatively? If you look at reincarnation science, I've had Jim Tucker from the University of Virginia on the show. On one hand, you could say, wow, it fits in with what Riz is saying. 
On the other hand, you could say, no, there's some kind of fundamental contradictions in terms of, at least in terms of the hierarchy of consciousness, because it's definitely implying some kind of hierarchy that isn't really modeled in what you're talking about. Well, I, I think the metaphor fits pretty well. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time with the uh, near-death experiencers uh, and, uh, you know, many of them report uh, that they were able to look back in what's called a life review, right? And so they were able to uh, kind of go back and view the events. And many of them describe it as a room with a big projector, right? And so they're using this metaphor and it's like replaying something that has been recorded, right? But what, what was interesting to me and why I wrote the second book and I included a chapter on that, you know, near the end is that sometimes they report being able to see what would have happened, right? Had they made different choices as if that wasn't that different from what actually happened. And so I think the metaphor of the, the simulation or video game works pretty well because it means you can rerun. I mean, they're talking about a life review of things that hadn't happened, right? But that might have happened and they're watching it as if they had actually happened. And turns out, you know, when, when people uh, talk about uh, the, the life preview, uh, kind of in what the Buddhists call the bardo, which some people remember through whether it's through hypnosis, et cetera. And some people, even in Jim Tucker's case, remember that experience of before they were incarnated into this life. They talk about being able to see paths of like these trees uh, that move out and that there are these major decision points and that they can watch what would have happened in New York. Uh, and, you know, A Journey of Souls from Dr. Michael Newton is a good example of a series of case studies along these lines. And they said it was weird. It was as if I was actually watching life in New York before I had been born. And so, you know, what, what does that mean? How do we fit that into a model that we as human beings can understand, you know, with our, with our minds. And I think the, the video game metaphor is a very good one because it means you just run that part of the game. You watch what would happen uh, and you say, well, it's as if it was actually happening. Well, that's because when it actually happens, it's just the run of the game or the simulation that you've decided to be in. It's not that different. Like a potential run of the simulation isn't that different from what is, it is actually run. Uh, and so I think the metaphor actually works pretty well as a way to understand now, it's not exactly that because you say, well, in video game, I'm a physical person outside of the game. So am I a physical person outside of our simulation, right? Or am I just pure consciousness? Well, that depends, right? When people talk about a near-death experience uh, or they remember the, the in-between state, they all describe it similarly but differently, Right. Some people describe something that looks like heaven. Some people describe a city. Some people describe a garden. Well, those are just additional simulations, right? That's why they can be different. And so, you know, I, I guess there is, in my opinion, you know, a hierarchy of these types of simulations that get created for us. And in the end, yeah, it probably goes back to pure, pure consciousness. We were all connected, trying to have an experience. Why do we play video games in the first place? This is a question I like to ask when people say, what's the point of, of, of having a simulation? So there's two, two main reasons we play video games or run simulations. One is to see what would happen if, 
we run simulations with different variables. And the second is to have experiences that we can't have outside of that environment. Like I can't fly in a dragon in this particular physical reality. I can do it inside a video game. So it's possible that you know what we're experiencing here in this reality is something that we can't experience outside and we need to embody ourselves to run the simulation. So, yeah, I mean, I do think there is some kind of a hierarchy uh, that goes on. I, I can't claim to have the exact answers for what that looks like. Well, you're like, talking about God but... now. I mean, you're talking about God. <laughs> if there's a hierarchy of consciousness, that's just code speak for God. Yeah, eventually there's some entity or, or thing <laughs> that we are all a part of that is running this simulation. Now, when people say, well, you know, who are the simulators? And I say, well, first of all, it could be us, right? It, does, it doesn't have to be like, you know, one simulator. We could each be having experiences because we're all running this as players. But you're right. I think if you take that metaphor further, you do end up with some kind of single consciousness or, or eventual simulator, if you will, that is akin to what some people call God. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the big question that we're kind of struggling with, and I just like, I think you're adding so, so much to the discussion in a really important way of you're, you're grounding it in a way that we're familiar with, or at least think we're familiar with because we think we know how computers work. But the big question, like I studied a near death experience for the longest time. And if you look at all the books on and on and on, they're talking about evidence and evidence and evidence. And this is big battle between science and kin consciousness extend beyond bodily death. But if you get past that and you look at the accounts, overwhelmingly, statistically, number one thing, love. Number one thing, connection. Number one thing, uh, spirit, spirituality, you know, in a way that doesn't really conform very well, seems to, seems to not fit as comfortably in some of those models. What people are saying over and over again is, hey, you know what, religion, if that if that floats your boat, fine, but it's really not about that. It's really about this connection, this feeling of uh, a connection that is fundamental to who we are, but is obscured by the game, by the simulation. And that when people get outside of time space, either in near-death experience or an OBE or doing psychedelics or whatever, they immediately see things differently. And there, I, I just think, the metaphor, if we look at it as consciousness is fundamental and it's all about uh, light and love and hierarchy of consciousness, it, 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 then it looks like we're kind of stretching the metaphor to me. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, it depends which metaphor you're using and exactly how you're using it. I mean, for me, I, I think let's use a different metaphor instead of a video game. Let's use social networks, right, which, which people use all the time today and creates lots of angst. But why do we use social networks? We create an identity online, but primarily what makes a social network different from a website is the social part of it. It's that there are other people and we define ourselves by what we are sharing and our interactions within those people. So if you think about it for a second, uh, you know, getting away from all the negative stuff around social networks, the purpose of a social network is connections right now you can say people have you know toxic connections they may have good connections 
they may have spiritual inspiring, they may have bad connections, you know, uh, people get more anxious when they, all these things that happen with those connections. Well, you could be describing life, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what happens in life, right? If we're coming here to have connections and experiences with other people during that time, we have all these problems, we have anxieties, things go wrong. Uh, but really it's about the connection. So I think that metaphor is a good way to describe this idea of we're all jumping into this thing to have these experiences, but there is an element of unpredictability to what happens because each of us is still making choices along the way. And that creates a lot of the friction that we see in the world, in the video game and uh, in, in, in the social network. But perhaps it's all, you know, a carefully crafted illusion and, and we chose to be here and play, you know, in the game. So that's kind of, kind of how, I, how I think about it. And so, you know, if you back up, you still get to that same place of the reason to be here is love. But I would say the reason to be here perhaps is relationship, right? It's to, to give ourselves the experience of having relationship with different parts uh, of consciousness, which we see as other people, uh, which eventually may be all connected. Yeah. Great. Let me hit the spiritual angle from one other perspective. You know, you're always going to be tied to the matrix movies whether you want to right. or not it kind of connects <laughs> connects people to your work i think in a wonderful way I, I think it's really a positive thing but there's kind of two ways to read the matrix you know from a spiritual perspective one of the groups that really latches on to the matrix are the gnostic people they go that's a gnostic movie that's you know right create better than the creator gods and there are some very gnostic themes to it and i kind of look at the spirituality thing from kind of I kind of have a, a Western yogic kind of philosophy. I, 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 the, the Western yogis to me are, are the best of combining some of that deep, deep wisdom with kind of a more current view. But the, the two ways of looking at it, I think, is one is kind of the Gnostic is this battle, you know, the create better than the creator gods, which is, I think, that, that sums up what the Matrix is about. But the Matrix is very materialistic science right they are you know neo really is some place and he really is experiencing something and then he's experiencing a false created reality false maybe is not the right word you know when he does this what the yogis are telling us is kind of what you're saying that's ah, all maya you know i mean just you don't even have to engage in any of it. You are instantly connected, and it's not a matter of, uh, it's just a matter of realizing it. It's not a matter of getting anywhere. It's just a matter of accepting that that instant connection is there. And that, we're gonna talk about collapsing, <laughs> collapsing all the, you know, that collapses everything. So what about those two competing kind of spiritual ideas? What do you make of that? Yeah, you know, I, I I find it interesting. I mean, I don't claim to be an expert on the on the Gnostic you know points of view, but I'm familiar with some of the the broad outlines. But when you think of the Western yogis, right? I mean, one of the the, the yogis from the East that really introduced you know a lot of the way we think about yoga and meditation was uh, 
Yogananda, uh, you know, who came over back in the 1920s and wrote Autobiography of a Yogi. I'm actually working on a book about lessons, you know, for modern seekers, you know, from Yogananda and his autobiography. But I'm writing it here in the U.S. for HarperCollins in India, which is a whole whole interesting thing. Uh, You know, it's a little bit of the pizza effect, they call it, you know, how pizza came from Italy to here, but then it went what we think of as pizza and what you find as pizza in Italy is not what was originally pizza there. And so you have this mix, you know, of East and West, but, you know, one of Yogananda's points was, and he used a different metaphor. It was in the 1920s and thirties and forties that he primarily taught. And he used the metaphor of uh, the film projector because that was, you know, the new technology at the time. And, and, you know, he, he looked at world war one, you know, which, which went on during his lifetime Uh, and said, you know, look at all this suffering and all these things that are going on. And he said, well, it's like a movie, right? The the movie needs to have that there. And we're so engrossed in it that we forget that it's a movie and that the players are there. You know, they have agreed to be there and go through a lot of that for the purpose of having this experience. So, you know, personally, I tend to to be more on that side, uh, I guess what you the Western yogis or this mix of Western and Eastern. Uh, but, you know, even Philip K. Dick, who, who I reference a lot in this book, uh, you know, when he came up with this idea of the simulation and the multiple timelines, he, he said, well, there was a programmer and a counter programmer. And it's almost like they're sitting across the table from each other playing chess and one would change a variable and it would change it in time like a while ago and that would change everything today and you know i found this just an interesting fascinating meta another metaphor that is a way of looking at things uh which led me to the mandela effect you know uh which is about how why do things change and one of the aspects of the mandela effect that if you look online is this idea of scriptural changes like is the bible changing like are the actual words you know with uh, isaiah uh, about the lion and the lamb and turns out well there you know that that particular verse does not talk about the lion and the lamb it talks about the wolf <laughs> and the lamb and yet there are people who have pictures that they've created of lions and lambs you know based upon this quote that everybody think they remembers and some people say well it was actually my physical bible has changed well it, in the islamic traditions you know, they actually memorize the Quran word for word. And, you know, one of the, the, the Sufi uh, leaders of one of the, the U.S. Sufi organizations was saying the reason for that is supposedly there are these entities, these jinns who don't exist in time like you and I do. They can go back and change physical objects in time, but they can't change your memory necessarily. And so one of the reasons we don't rely on the written text, but we make sure everybody knows every word orally and has memorized it is because it may change. Now, that's another interesting perspective. You know, I mean, I, I tend to, uh, you know, lean more on the the Yogananda metaphors uh, and that perspective myself. But, you know, it, it, it all ties together. The one thing they both agree on is what we think of as time and space is a kind of illusion, right? It's the, the meaning of the word Maya is a carefully crafted illusion, right? If you look at kind of the, the idiom and what it actually means, uh, it's crafted for our benefit. And it turns out that's something you can find agreement on in the Quran and across, you know, all the major religions. And so that's, you know, part of what I like to do with this metaphor is, is, is find the commonalities and say, hey, we can at least agree on this if we can't agree on some of these other things. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's quite extraordinary. You know, Yogananda always has a special place in my heart. You know, when I was uh, when I was an entrepreneur and I started my company at a small AI company in Dallas, 
I was doing the correspondence classes with Yogananda, you know, they would back in the way back in the day, you know, they'd send them to you weekly. And now I right. live, they, now I live, sorry, you know, seven miles from his uh, ashram out here in uh, San Diego. And every week I uh, bicycle up and do yoga looking out over this beautiful scenery in Cardiff and you look at the ocean and you look right at his incredible um, self-realization fellowship house that he built and they kind of keep it as a museum and stuff. It's a very, very, very spiritual yeah, place. It is. In fact, I was just there this summer as part of my research. And so I went to the room where he wrote, you know, autobiography of a yogi. And it's, uh, I guess, in Encinitas there near Cardiff. Right. And they're looking out over the ocean. And, and, and you know, so it was quite, quite an experience for me to be there. It was quite fun, actually. And, and just for, for people who don't know, I mean, you, you talk about a simulated multiverse the title of your latest book, anyone who picks up that book and reads the first 30 pages, I mean, Riz, uh, exactly, this is your point, I guess, is, you know, shape-shifting, time, uh, all sorts of uh, time, you know, appearing here and then bilocating over there. I mean, it it's just writes like a script for what you're talking about, right? So it's funny that you're that you're going to write that book. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, a lot of the I've always been fascinated by the accounts of uh, the Eastern yogis uh, with, you know, these different tales of miracles and bilocation. And, you know, it turns out that, you know, that's not just in the Eastern traditions and the Catholic traditions. Right. Uh, I spent some time speaking with, you know, Diana Walsh Pasulka, you know, who is a professor of, of Catholic studies at, uh, in North Carolina. And, you know, she, her research, you know, went into some of the uh, examples of bilocation within the Catholic you know, canon uh, within the Americas and, and and Europe, and somebody being you know uh, a particular nun being seen by the Indians in, in in New Mexico, and so I've always been fascinated by all of this stuff. And so for me, that a simulation and then a simulated multiverse provides you know the best way to bridge the gap between these things. Because one approach that people in the science and technology world they say, oh, that's all nonsense; it doesn't happen. And I say, well, perhaps it's our understanding isn't quite complete. But this idea of the simulation is one that can bridge that gap. And that, that's really one of the reasons why I felt compelled to spend so much time. Uh, and, and hopefully now with the second book, I'm done with the topic for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Great. Okay, so I want to wrap it up, but you brought up Diana Walsh Pasolka, and I thought her book, American Cosmic, and she was on the show, is, I, I got it. What do you think? I mean, that's one of the most challenging kind of books. You talk about screwing with the timeline, I mean, as soon as we introduce ET, the timeline looks completely different on, on this other realm of, on this other aspect of how long have we been here? Are, are we part of an ongoing physical genetic engineering timeline that spans hundreds of thousands of years? When you look at the genealogical record, there's something going on. A lot of things point to that. And then here comes Diana Walsh Pasolka goes, yeah, I was out collecting space junk in the desert and then your friend jacques valet is carrying around you know little bits of spaceships in his pocket that says <laughs> i can't really say how this could be engineered or manufactured in this timeline so do you even go there or do you just kind of well I, I don't go there so much in the new book but I, in the last book i went there a little bit uh because i feel like uh, there is an overlap uh, here, which is that we have to broaden our thinking. Uh, 
you know, when we talk about this ET phenomenon, that it may not be as Jacques Vallée, you know, has said for many years, is that there's an element of the absurd and there's an element of staging, right? It's almost like these things are being staged for us in some way. And, you know, when I interviewed Jacques for, for my for, for the, for the previous book, you know, he said there were instances where people say they saw a UFO coming at like a 45 degree angle, you know, and he went out and he, he looked at where they were saying it landed. And despite the fact that there was some physical, like, you know, some burned areas on the ground, he looked at the 45 degree angle. He said that would have to go through these massive redwood trees, right? I mean, it would literally have had to cut through the trees. And they're like, yeah, but I didn't want to say that to the other investigators because it just sounded absurd, right? So it's almost like the witnesses aren't willing because they know we live in kind of a rational rationally minded world, they weren't willing to uh, speak about some of these more absurd elements. And, you know, turns out, well, that the fact that perhaps these things are both physical and non-physical, that they're coming into our reality and rendering at a certain point provides an explanation for how they could go through physical matter so easily. And so, you know, I, I don't personally, you know, speculate too much on what these timelines are, but I do think that uh, that some of these visitors, you know, may be coming from other timelines, that we have to broaden our perspective of what we think, that it's just, uh, you know, we know what the universe is like. I mean, the reality is our science may only be 7% of what we have to discover, which means 90 plus percent has not even been discovered yet. Uh, and so the multiverse idea provides a way to think about, at least a framework to think about how these multiple timelines could be happening uh, and how each of these are different runs or experiments of that simulation. So I think it ties, you know, both in terms of uh, UFOs, science, and of course, science fiction. You know, it's a very popular topic these days in science fiction with uh, the Marvel multiverse. And, you know, I don't know if you saw the show Loki. Uh, it's all about having these different versions of superheroes on these different timelines. Uh, and so it's an interesting, you know, I think metaphor that cuts across the worlds of uh, some of the UFOs, conspiracy, as well as uh, more pop culture. Yeah. Absolutely. Our guest again has been Riz Verk. You definitely want to check out this book. It's already number one as a pre-release. By the time you listen to this, it'll be out. The Simulated Multiverse and MIT Computer Scientist Explores Parallel Universes, The Simulation Hypothesis, Quantum Computing, and The Mandela Effect. Fantastic. You want to check that out. His other books, which you'll find at his Amazon page, the one that we talked about last time, The Simulation Hypothesis, and then some really, really cool entrepreneur books that have this computer science angle, which is so great. Because I mean, this guy, we didn't even talk about his experience at Play Labs, but I mean, he's still an active entrepreneur. And he's kind of one of these helper entrepreneurs where he's trying to help other people who are trying to do this and make it happen at a time when so many people have this angst and stuff like that. This is like an exciting time, isn't it? I mean, this is like one of the most exciting times in history for development of new technology. There's so many things that are, what do you think about that, Riz? Isn't this a great time for entrepreneurs to jump in the game if they have that skill set? Yeah, I think this is, 
you know, a great time for entrepreneurs. I mean, we're going through a level of technological change, really, that hasn't been seen since the Industrial Revolution, right? You know, I grew up in Detroit, and, you know, I used to wonder, why does GM have Buick and Cadillac? And well, not, these are all entrepreneurs who created these companies, you know, back in the day. Uh, and today, what's happening with, you know, networking and with blockchain and with virtual reality and with AI, uh, you know, computers are touching every part of our lives. And so, you know, that's where I've spent, you know, a good part of my career. And so now I try to help other other folks, you know, sometimes as an investor or advisor through different accelerator programs, like the one I did at MIT, Play Labs. But yeah, I think this, this is definitely a great time. You know, I always wish I was 20 years younger because this is a great time. Get really, back in the game, man. Get, get back, get in, back the in the game. Yeah, I'm getting a little too old for that now, but uh, <laughs> it's a great time for that. But you're shaping the game too. And I think there's an interesting kind of convergence between you shaping the game with younger entrepreneurs and merging with this kind of expanded worldview that you're bringing to it. There's, again, as we talked about, there's where these things can kind of come together naturally, you know, because as more people push that envelope, they're more receptive to these deeper, big picture things that you're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And today, there's a lot of chatter in, in Silicon Valley and beyond about the metaverse. And, you know, what is the metaverse? It's a virtual 3D environment where we can all interact with one another but we can also have you know ownership of assets and move things around. Well, as that becomes a reality, we're seeing a science fiction concept turn into physical reality, but that ties very much to my idea of reaching the simulation point, which is that if we can create something that we get so immersed in that we forget about the physical world, it's probably already happened. And that's what ties to all the, the broader discussions we had here about the spiritual side of things as well. Yeah. Great, awesome way to wrap it up. The, the kind of the Turing test on super steroids kind of uh, when we get to that simulation point. Fantastic. Riz Verk has been our guest again. Riz, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks again to Riz Verk for joining me today on Skeptico. The one question I'd have to tee up from this interview what do you think about the simulated multiverse metaphor? We talk quite a bit about it, its connection to science, hard science, also its connection to potentially extended consciousness as we understand it, and thirdly, its connection to spirituality, which we all understand we don't understand. So let me know your thoughts on that question. And you know, while you're at it, I would really like to grow the Skeptico community. I would like other people to hear this interview, share these ideas. You know, the show is totally free. There's no paywall. There's no advertisements. All the past shows are free. I'm never trying to sell anything other than the ideas of the people who come on the show. And I'd like those ideas to reach as many people as possible. So if you can, if you think that's a good idea, something you can get behind, Please do it in any way you see fit. And if you need some extra ideas, then email me and we'll figure it out together. But I think it would be fun to grow this community. I also think it'd be fun to grow the Skeptico Forum community. Come on over. Love people that have really, really smart thinking and are willing to share research and ideas, not just opinions. So that's really what the Skeptical Forum is about. And if you want to come over and join us, I'd love to have you over there. That's going to do it for today. Until next time, take care. Bye for now. 